Good morning. How is everyone? Yeah? Are you awake? Did you get your coffee and hot chocolate back there? Oh, we're going to call everybody in from out there that's having their breakfast. It's time to come worship Jesus. So we're going to have you come in. There you are. <laughs> They're like, don't say my name. Don't say my name. <laughs> Well, good morning. We're glad you guys are here and came out in this cold weather and the snow, and and uh, you're here to tell Jesus you love him this morning. So we're glad about that. I'm going to ask Jane King. She is our board member, one of our board members, but she's going to come give us an update this morning. So if you're out there, you're going to miss the update, so you need to come on in. So uh, Jane, come on up, and we will uh, be excited to hear what you have to tell us. Good morning, everybody. Just um, wanted to uh, give you a little update from the board. After being rescheduled twice due to illness of board members and bad weather, this last month the board finally got to meet on this last Tuesday, uh, February 1st, so we were glad to all get back together again. Um, I, I kind of wrote things down so I wouldn't miss anything, so I'm just going to kind of read this. Um, and um, the first subject is um, the pastoral search progress. And um, because we've had no pastoral candidates we feel led to pursue at this time from our stack of resumes we received from the district superintendent, um, we've um, listened to many of you and have just advised us to, uh, many of you have advised us to keep, please don't be in a big hurry um, wait on the Lord for direction in selecting our new pastor. We really thought and talked about that a lot. So we appreciate your continued prayers um, for this process. Due to personal obligations, Pastor Tim was expecting to fill the pulpit up till February 1st, um, but he's graciously agreed to preach for a little while longer until an official interim pastor is in place. So thank you so much, Tim. <laughs> Uh, we love him so much. To maneuver forward, though, we've applied um, to the district to enroll us in the TIPS program, which stands for Temporary Interim Pastor Service. When approved, the district will send an interim pastor for six to nine months to be our pastor, live here on site, and serve and prepare our con congregation as we continue to search for a permanent long-term pastor. So... Um, there, this will give us an opportunity to review new resumes as they become available and have pastoral leadership on site as we need and we so long for around here. Um, anybody has any questions about that, you're certainly welcome to talk to the board members. And um, there is a, You can even go on the Nazarene website and it talks about that TIPS program if anybody's interested in looking at it and checking out specifics of it. Uh, it looks pretty neat. It's a service provided by the Nazarene District. We are currently in the process of interviewing applicants for church administrator, secretary, and children's ministry directory, director and hope to have those positions filled very soon. Volunteers are in place in the children's ministry, and Lori is covering office duties at this time, so contact Lori with any questions or needs in any of these areas if you have questions or needs. In March, the board will begin the process of filling open board member positions 
or replacing outgoing board members that are phasing off. And a nominating committee will be formed to select board candidates to be voted on by the congregation. So that's a, all, all in progress. Um, we want to thank Dr. Ashgren, our district superintendent, for being available to us as we work through many of these important issues. And we thank Jesus for being our faithful good shepherd who leads and guides us. And um, that's um, the update from the board. Thanks. Well, let me just give you a couple more announcements so you guys are in the loop. We have um, coming up on Wednesday, we have prayer meeting. Boy, it is important for us to be praying together as a church. So I want to encourage you to come. And I want you to know that we have been praying prayers from last summer that are being answered now. And we need to be faithful in praying. We need to be here. We need to pray together. God calls this church to pray. So I am going to continue to ask you to come. We want to fill this place on Wednesday nights, and we want to make sure that we are, are asking the Holy Spirit to come in and that we're praising him when we get reports, but it is important for us to be a praying church. So you guys need to be there. You need to come. Even if it's once a month that you commit to, just come once a month. That's okay, too. You don't have to come every week, but come. You need to be here. We want you to be here. And while I'm on that, your prayer request cards are on the chairs. Please give us your, your prayers. I already got one in my hand this morning from someone. And if you have praises, we want to praise along with you. So God is moving here. He is doing things. And um, it's been a season for us as a church but God is not done, and he moves in his people. And sometimes he takes his time building his foundation, and then he booms. So the boom is coming. So also, if you're new here, we want you to fill out this um, connection card so we can connect with you. Um, they're on the chairs, and they're also on the back tables by the sound booth. You guys can fill those out as well. So let's stand, and let's pray, and ask the Holy Spirit to come in this morning and then let's just love on Jesus with our praise and worship this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for this snow that you've given us, Lord, that reminds us of how you clean us and make us pure and just what you do, Lord. We thank you for the fact that you've been waiting for all of these kids in these chairs to come in and tell you that they love you. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing here in our church. We know you're moving and we trust you. We believe you for working all things for good for your purposes. So, Lord, we praise you for that, and we thank you for being um, the almighty God that takes care of us. So, Father, this morning, we want to give you an offering of praise. So we want to give this to you from our hearts, and I pray that you'll just help us set all the busyness of our weeks, all of our agendas and things that we need to get done. Just help us to set them aside and just focus on you and who you are. It's time for us to spend time with you. We've missed you, and we want to spend that time with you together and corporately worship you, Jesus. So we ask your spirit to come in and take over. Be welcome in this place, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Let's worship him.
morning to the people around you to say, hi, I'm glad you're here. Glad you came when it snowed.
when you look at it. We're making a statement. I will build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. We can count on him, right? I will put my trust in you alone. Does anybody struggle with that? Does anybody look around and put your trust somewhere else and then you realize this is a hot mess and I need to look somewhere else? Yeah, that's a tough one. And then I will not be shaken. Why is it that we're not shaken? Because we put our trust in him instead of the stuff around us, right? That's the hard part. That's the hard part. Looking around horizontally is, is a lot easier, isn't it? But the sun gets in your eyes. Play on words. Sun gets in your eyes when you look up. S-O-N. So we're going to praise him some more this morning. We're going to introduce a new song to you because we really have an awesome God, and this song just speaks to that so much. And um, so we're, it's real simple. You guys will catch on easily, but it just talks about who he is and how awesome he is. And it's easy for us to get caught up in our everyday stuff, isn't it? Or caught up in pain. Does anybody deal with pain? That's tough. Pain is hard stuff. Timothy's in pain this morning back on the drums, so we're praying him through it. And it's hard, and it distracts us, but God is still there through the pain. He's still there through the circumstances. And to remember who he is takes our eyes off the circumstances. So that's what this song is going to help us learn to do more. Oh, 
surprises you and you know right where we're at and some of us may have walked into these doors this morning feeling defeated and weary and tired and even running out of hope but you are the life giver in all things and nothing gets by you and you hold us in your hand and you know every hair on our head and you know every detail of the circumstance. And you haven't forgotten us. Because you love us so much. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Because we need you. And there is nothing in this world that will ever fulfill us or satisfy us or, or give us what we need. It is you. And the joy comes straight from you, Jesus, and it starts bubbling up from deep within us, even when we don't feel it. So, Lord, let that joy out this morning, even if we don't feel like it. Because you are worth all things. And keeping our eyes on you is what's important. And remembering who you are, because you are awesome. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. We're going to have the ushers come forward. We're going to receive the offering this morning. And then we're going to continue to worship. I've been spending time with him in the Word this week. Pretty deep. I have some things that are going on, and I'm just studying some more. And man, is he amazing. If you don't get to spend time with him, I encourage you, because wow, when he reveals himself. It's really special, and you'll know his voice more if you spend more time with him. 
So let me pray over the offering. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gifts. Thank you for loving us, Father, and taking care of us and providing. We just pray that you'll bless this. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
Oh, Jesus, amen. You are worthy, Lord, and you are holy. Thank you for being here, Father. We love you. Be with Pastor Tim as he brings your mighty word to us. Lord, let it just plunge down inside of us and take root. Anoint him, Jesus. We thank you for him, and thank you for giving us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Flory. Are we still doing that thing Friday night? Are we still doing that thing Friday night? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this Friday night? This Friday. What time? It's this Friday at 6.30. 6.30. And we're going to have... And we are going to have a potluck, so everybody needs to bring chicken. Chicken. Well, if you were here last week, you know somebody's got to bring chicken, or we're in trouble, because Earl needs chicken. Yeah. Right? Earl, Earl Pike's going to be here. Earl will be here. If you don't know Earl, you need to come and meet Earl, because he's a great guy, but he likes chicken, so somebody's got to bring chicken, and then everybody else can bring whatever you want for the potluck, and then we're going to have an old-fashioned hymn sing. It's going to be lots of fun. It's going to be a good time. So we want you guys to be here. Thank you for remembering that. Well, chicken is dear to my heart. <laughs> Thank you. What I want to share with you today may sound more like a lesson than a sermon. It might sound more like a lecture than an inspiration. We spoke last week about this idea of a great awakening. And it stirred my spirit as I think it stirred some of yours. And I have felt impressed for some time to hang on that idea. And today, I, I would like for us to dive deeper into that idea. I am simply hungry for God. Jerry, would it help if I used her handheld? Okay. Somebody that knows how to do there, there, just leave me there, and we'll fight with that, okay? Um, on Thursday mornings, I meet with some old guys from this church, and we normally meet over at Wendy's, and we have coffee, and we talk, and we talk about life, and we talk about ministry. And we talk about church. And last Thursday we talked about this past Sunday's sermon. And I sensed in those old guys, they're all almost old, all older than me. I sensed the same spiritual hunger that I am experiencing. 
we shared experiences about our own awakenings and those that we have experienced. And as I left there, go back home, I found myself wanting to go home and try to write some powerful sermon that would generate the results that I'm looking for. And then it hit me. What I was feeling was a pressure to manipulate God into doing my bidding on my timetable. I cannot preach us into a great awakening. It comes at the desire of God when and where he chooses. But I can try to help us foster a hunger for his presence. And that's all I can do. Anything else has to be up to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. There on the top of your little sheet that I gave you this morning, I gave my assistant the wrong verse to put there. But 2 Corinthians 7 1 says, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Let me try to tie on to what I shared with you last week. The roots of our church go back almost 300 years back to the middle of that great awakening that I spoke about last Sunday that swept across the island of England and was directed chiefly by a man named John Wesley. Wesley was a preacher in the Church of England. He was the son of a preacher. His brother Charles was a gifted hymn writer, also a preacher. And there was another pastor, one that I mentioned last week, named George Whitfield. Many men and women came to an experience of personal salvation through Jesus Christ, an experience that we might refer to as being born again, or when I was growing up, you were saved. Did you get saved? Yeah, I got saved. And as I mentioned last week, at times, Wesley would preach to thousands of people in open air, just out in fields, without the benefit of amplification. And he unsettled the established church with a sermon that he titled, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. And it embodied the message, the doctrine, that would come to be known as holiness. Now here was John Wesley standing five foot two and yet he shook the edges of the envelope that had so neatly contained God in a space small enough for us to understand him. And that revival that started there in England culminating in what became known as the Methodist Episcopal Church. They were called Methodists because Wesley's approach to discipleship was so methodical. So Methodists became their nickname 
or the slang that was used to refer to those that he was training. They became Methodists. Now in America, the Methodist church was organized in 1784. I know that doesn't mean much to you, but it is important. Because the stated purpose of the Methodist church in 1784 was, and I quote, to reform the continent and to spread scriptural holiness over these lands. That's a pretty amazing goal. That's a pretty incredible mission statement. But as time passed, as happens with all denominations, the passion of the movement began to fade after the leader was gone. I mean, there were many who came along to pick up the mantle and promote a life of holy living, but the energy and the intensity waned. But then in the 19th century, a renewed emphasis of Christian holiness, holy living, began in the eastern United States and spread across this nation. That, invite, that, that revival ensued in, a, in America, spilling out of the Methodist church. Charles Finney was a man, some of you would know that name. He led a renewed emphasis on holy living in the Presbyterian and, and the congregational circles. And a Baptist evangelist by the name of A.B. Earle was among the leaders of the holiness movement within that denomination. And Hannah Whitehall Smith, a Quaker, a popular holiness evangelist, published a book called A Christian Secret to a Happy Life. It became a classic text in Christian spirituality. And William Booth and Samuel Bringle and the Salvation Army were also picking up the mantle at the same time. In the 1890s, a new wave of holiness groups came into being. And it was out of the desire for a national church that emphasized holy living that the Church of the Nazarene that I'm part of came into being. And the desire was to rekindle that original purpose of the Methodist church to reform the continent and to spread scriptural holiness over these lands. And it was that church into which I was born almost 74 years ago. And in the process of trying to be holy people, when I was growing up, we made great effort to let people know that we were holiness people by the way we dressed. Women with skirts to their ankles and sleeves to their wrists and hair that wasn't cut. And guys, sometimes I would see guys wouldn't wear a tie because it was too decorative. <laughs> now we don't wear them because we just don't like them, you know. But we became fairly legalistic in our approach to life and to our relationship with Jesus. And all of it was done with the best of intentions. Gladly, I came along toward the tail end of that evolutionary cycle of the doctrine of holy living. By the time I was in college and seminary, the doctrine was discussed quite a bit, and some of the old-time preachers preached it with great fervor, but my generation was not easily persuaded that it was even true. Because, you see, when I compared holiness as I heard it preached growing up in the church that I grew up in, 
when I compared it with the way people in my church lived, I came to believe that I had never seen anyone live life like the pastor was describing it in his sermon. And I began to wonder if he really believed it himself or simply preached the party line because it was expected of him. So my generation has done two things with this idea of holiness. My generation. First, we tried to change the language to better understand the intent. Or second, we stopped talking about it altogether. And as a result, I am part now of a denomination, a church that is in search of an identity. Because that was our cardinal doctrine. That was what made us different. And if there isn't anything peculiar about a particular church, then why not join some other biblical believing group and just call it a day? I mean, is it possible that those of us in the holiness movement that started with such power over a hundred years ago in the United States are becoming like the Myanmar pygmies? In the beginning of the 21st century, there was a conservationist by the name of Alan Rabinowitz. And he was going out into the remote mountains in Myanmar, which in until I think 1989 was called Burma. It was relatively unexplored part of that nation. And he wanted to go there to document species of indigenous animals and plant life that was unknown to the outside world. The officials of Burma, Myanmar, were supportive of what he wanted to do because they too had little understanding of what was going on in those jungles and even if there were some people living there. Well, prior to setting out on his excursion, Rabinowitz came across some reports that had been written in the late 50s and 60s, and those reports told about a tribe of approximately 100 pygmies living off there in the mountains. It contained the world's only pygmies of Asian descent. But now for nearly four decades, no one had even heard of Rabinowitz went into the jungles and he found those people and he regretted to discover that there were only about a dozen of them still in existence. The genetic line of only three was pure and those three had decided not to marry and as a result they were within a few years of total extinction. He was speaking to the youngest remaining pygmy, 39-year-old bachelor. And he was told that they had conscientiously, consciously chosen not to reproduce to continue their lineage. And Rabinowitz said they became active participants in their own extinction. They became active participants in their own extinction. I have the feeling sometimes that we are living in a day when the fundamental identity of the holiness movement, its theological distinction, is also becoming extinct. 
Maybe it's just the organizational machinery that keeps the tradition alive while the theology no longer exists or exerts influence. I mean, could it be that holiness people, those who thought they were part of some kind of a movement of a desire to live a holy life, have become passive participants and at times even active participants in the looming extinction of our own theological heritage? Or could it be that we have moved from the original understanding of a biblical view of holiness to the point now where we have and have had for some time a holiness misunderstanding? What if... What if we've grown to the point in the church where once again we've lost sight of what holy people are supposed to be? What if, like in the early midpoint of the last century, when we were all about legalism and we missed the point, what if in the past 40 years we have grown sophisticated enough to apply theological sounding terms to holiness, but again, miss the core notion of what it means to be God's holy people. I'm wondering if we focused for most of my youth and teen, and teen years on the contributing notions of holiness rather than on the core. And as a result, we've lost our understanding of what holiness really is, no? Perhaps my generation has never had a healthy understanding of holiness. Because you see, when those contributing ideas or notions are treated as the core idea or notion, that's when we get in trouble. And some of you are saying, Pastor, I don't have a clue what you're talking about today. But if I were to know, what do you mean? I mean, there are passages throughout the Bible that reveal a variety of meanings for holiness or God's sanctified people. And, and I'd like for us to examine some of those. Now, I gave you a little sheet of paper today with some pillars on it. If you get that out, I'm going to help you. And maybe on each one of those pillars, you would write one of these words. On that first pillar on your left, just write in the word rules. Just write in the word rules. Because I grew up in a church that kind of felt like rules was the thing. Bible scholars have often labeled the rules that are listed in Leviticus, especially in chapter 17 through 26, as the holiness code. But there are problems that arise when we think the core meaning of holiness is following rules and regulations because it takes us right into the heart of legalism. And listen to me, legalism is lethal to holiness. Legalism is lethal to holiness. Now the Pharisees were apparently holy in the sense that they kept all the rules commanded of them. And even Jesus in Matthew 23, 23 seems to be indicating that laws are a means to an end. Rules and regulations are not ends in of themselves. Rules and regulation can only serve as a contributing element in an adequate understanding of what it means to be God's holy people. That second pillar, right in the word purity. 
Some would say, well, well I, I grew up in a church where holy living was described as purity. Now, the idea of being pure appeals to most of us. I mean, we, we want that, but, but there are a number of problems that arise when we consider purity as the core value or notion of holiness. See, the problem is that purity is something static. It is not relational. And the best examples of purity are non-personal, static kinds of things. The Bible writes typically, the, the, the Bible speaks typically about purity when it's talking about cups and bowls and candelabra and things that were in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple. But as people were relational and were constantly changing, so it seems a bit strange to use a static category of purity. And when we talk about purity by using moral categories, it typically leads us right back to talking about holiness in terms of rules and regulations and how legalistic we can become. Now, I grew up in the church of the Nazarene. But I'm talking to people this morning that came from almost every background we can imagine. And there are very few here who grew up in the same little tribe that I did. But if you grew up in an evangelical church, you grew up understanding that there were rules, there were regulations, and there was always an emphasis on trying to be pure. When we focus totally on purity and remaining pure, we are inclined to focus on avoiding sin rather than upon doing good and engaging our world. And those who concentrate on remaining pure tend to withdraw from the world. So although they're not of the world, neither are they in it. And we are not part of it. So just as an emphasis upon holiness as following rules tends to lead toward legalism, an emphasis on holiness as purity tends to lead toward disengagement and isolation. I'm not, not throwing stones, but it's a pretty good description of the Amish. I will, I will isolate myself. Now hear me. Purity, I think, plays an important role in holiness. But it's not the core value or notion of being God's holy people. Well, let's move to that third pillar. What about holiness as separation? I mean, that, that too can be important, but when we decide that being set apart or separate is the core value, I'm not saying it's not part of it, but when we decide that's the core value of holiness, again, problems float to the surface. You know what it is? That view of holiness fosters an attitude of us versus them. I don't know how many of you grew up in a church like my friend when I was in high school. I won't mention his denomination. His father was a pastor. But he would come to school and tell those of us who weren't part of his denomination, you're not going to heaven unless you come to my particular tribe. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Because I go to this church that emphasizes holiness and naturally we're going to heaven and I'm not sure you're going to make it. And we have an opportunity to begin looking at other people and thinking we're different than them or we're better than them because we're separate. It might be good reason to be different from them. 
but to view ourselves as some kind of an exclusive little cult, which I think a lot of churches have done, that's not a good thing. What are we set apart from? How many times across 51 years of ministry have I heard someone say to me, God called me to... God called me to... can often become this rubber stamp for the most ungodly behavior imaginable. We're mean to one another sometimes in the church. And if there's anything to this holiness idea... Shouldn't it be just the opposite? The idea of holiness as being set apart is important, but we have to look somewhere else to find the core meaning of holiness. Some would say, well then, next pillar. What about total commitment? Total, totally consecrated. I am absolutely devoted. I am totally committed. The problem there is the vagueness of the statement. What are you totally committed to? You see, some of us have the mistaken idea that total commitment to our church is the answer. I mean, even with, if we specify that we're, we're talking about being totally committed to God, then we need to ask, whose view of God do you mean? And I can tell you from conversations, there are a lot of different views of God represented in this congregation. If you watch the evening news, which I don't much anymore, you will often see reports of Islam, radical Islam, who are totally dedicated to God, totally committed, even to the point of choosing death, usually someone else's but they are totally committed to that particular view of God. So in the end, the view of God we have becomes crucial and determines to a great extent what we should expect from holy people. There's another pillar that I thought was part of it when I was growing up, and that was that holiness is being perfect. Oh my Lord. Following the command that Jesus gave in Matthew 5.48 has become another way of defining holiness. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in that fifth column, just write in the word perfect. So many of us have equated being holy with being perfect. And that's what I heard growing up. And I finally came to a realization one day, I can't do it. In fact, the holiness movement, beginning with John Wesley, has become well known for talking about perfection in this life. Clarifying in what ways one can be called perfect has been this ongoing and often unsuccessful project. How can, well, if it's perfect, what do you mean by being perfect? Aristotle said that something was perfect if it was fit for or accomplishing a specific purpose. If it was fit for or accomplishing a specific purpose. 
So if you take his definition, atheists can be holy if you define perfection in this way, as long as they fulfill their purpose as atheists. They're perfect. Others speak of perfection in the sense of never sinning. And that's what I heard growing up. It's difficult to see how that sense of perfection can be meaningfully applied to humans in light of Romans 3.23. Where it says, all have sinned, past tense, and fall short of the glory of God, present and future tense. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these notions that I've given you, these notions of what holiness is, are not important. I'm simply saying they are not the core of being God's holy people. What I'd like to do this morning is show you something better. Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century Danish philosopher whose ideas have had a lasting impact on the Western world. And as a young man, Kierkegaard wrote in his journal on one occasion, I want a truth for which I can live and I want a truth for which I can live and die. I also want that kind of truth. Is holiness truth? Not if it has to stand solely on the five definitions that we've looked at thus far, those five definitions that I grew up thinking that was holiness. But there is another meaning of holiness and I'd like you to write this one across the bottom of that little sheet, the foundation, because it has to do with love. Love functions as the core value of holiness. Love provides the foundation and the framework for faith. God's love for us and our love in return, as well as our love for our neighbors and for ourselves. And the reason so many of us struggle in life is because we don't think very much of ourselves. God wants you to love yourself. Because that resides, this idea of love for God and for others and for yourself resides at the core of Christianity. Love provides holiness with the foundation that it needs to flourish. And love is a truth for which we can live and die. I don't have time this morning to unfold all of that. In Leviticus and in 1 Peter, we find God's instruction. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And to unwind that, you have to ponder the very nature of God. God is saying... You shall be holy as he is holy. And the most fundamental claim about God is the very heart of the doctrine of God comes from a simple three-word sentence. God is love. Now, in 1 John 4, 16, John writes, God is love and those who abide in love abide in God. And God abides in them. In fact, 
you should go home this afternoon and read 1 John chapter 4 because it is a powerful chapter with at least five verses or five phrases in it that most of you know. You have heard them, but you don't even know this morning that they're in 1 John chapter 4. Let me share them with you. 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 says, The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You've heard that. Didn't know it was in 1 John 4 4. But what about 1 John 4.10? This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or 1 John 4.10, perfect love casts out fear. Or 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. Or 1 John 4.20, for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. From Genesis to Revelation, the story of God revolves around love. The great commandments provide even more basic information on how we should act. And Mark records them this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus adds, there is no commandment greater than these. Jesus is saying you can take all the rules and boil them down to those two. And Paul echoes those words by writing that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. When we consider the scriptural context of the instructions Jesus gave to his his disciples to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, it becomes clear that God's love provides the key to understanding what that even means. And when we look at all the concepts of holiness that are a part of most churches scattered across this nation and around our world, we discover that love integrates the positive aspects of every one of those things on that graph. Because to be holy is to love. To love God, to love your neighbor, to love God's creation, and to love yourself. You have permission to love yourself. We are holy as God is holy when we love as God loves. Other ideas of holiness contribute something valuable. But our general understanding, the core of holiness, is love. When I was in seminary, Dr. William Greathouse was the president. And he was a wonderful professor as well. And he used to tell the story about a woman who was married to a man who was a very exacting man, and he, he was 
mean. He, he, he was a male chauvinist pig is what he was. And he had laid out each day's duties that he expected her to perform. You will do these things every day. She was to get up at a certain time. She was to make sure breakfast was ready when he came out of the shower. She, he should be able to smell frying bacon and coffee percolating. And then she was to help him get off to work. And as soon as he left to work, there were all of these things that she was to do around the house. Make sure the dishes were washed, clean up the kitchen, sweep the, dust, sweep the floor, dust the house. And when he returned that evening, he made a point to check to see that she had done every one of those things that he had expected her to do. And it finally got to the point where he just made up a list to check to see if she had carried out his orders. A list of ten things that she needed to do every day and he thumbtacked it to the wall in the kitchen. If I did that, I'd be dead in about four minutes. In the course of time, his wife's love turned to bitterness. She felt that she had been reduced basically to slavery. She was frozen in fear as her life became just this list of things she was supposed to do. And then her husband passed away. And sometime later she met a fine man who knew the meaning of love and marriage. And they were married. And this marriage was altogether different than the first. Her husband was generous and kind and thoughtful. And he didn't have to command her to do things. She was more than eager to get up and make sure that she had breakfast for him as well as for herself. And they would sit and enjoy it together and she would send him off to work and she would be doing her things around the house and taking care of the kids and doing all of those things. And there was a genuine sense of delight. And one day as she was cleaning out some drawers, she was rummaging around in the back of the drawer and she found a crumpled up piece of paper and she pulled it out and pressed it out on the kitchen cabinet and found that it was the ten rules that her former husband had drawn up. And to her amazement, she was observing them all. Not because someone was forcing her to, but because she loved that person so much. See, love does nothing that the law forbids. And it does more than the law requires. And that's what I'm learning. And that's where my journey is taking me. Holiness is not trying to please God because He has written up a list of rules. It is loving Him to the point where you don't need rules to do what is right. Now, what do we do with this information? What I've shared with you today, I hope is foundational. I hope that this morning I've kind of for poured the footings to our explanation of this idea of being God's holy people. 
And my question becomes, is it too good to be true? Come back next week and find out. Almighty God, I give you thanks for your presence here today. For your willingness and your eagerness to reveal yourself to us. Father, I realize that all I can do is read your word and study it and apply it to my own life and then share with people what I'm learning, what I'm feeling, what I'm sensing. And Father, I pray that in the process of somehow sharing a testimony even this morning, that other people who have walked a path similar to mine will find that there is a greater sense of freedom in living in love for God than in living under a bunch of rules. I pray, Father, that there would be some shackles taken off today just as we celebrate who you are. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with me, please? And let's sing an old hymn that you might remember. It's been a long time. I think I even remember a, I think I even remember a harmony part to this one. I'm... Don't turn my microphone. I'm going to get your turn it off. <laughs>
to shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give you peace. God bless you. You are dismissed. And for me see